ask you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 16. We'll continue our study through the book of Acts today, Acts chapter 16. I, too, am excited about next week. Not that I'm overlooking this sermon I'm about to preach right now, but I'm looking forward to this coming with Reach Sunday. We talk a lot about our partnerships. You've heard it several times today. Um, we have two mission-sending organizations through the Southern Baptist Convention, one of them being the International Mission Board, where 3,500 missionaries, at least roughly 3,500 missionaries, are sent through our cooperative efforts together. And so next week we have the joy and privilege of having the president that is overseeing that work, Paul Chitwood, here with us. So I would encourage you to be here as well as many other missionaries here and a part of it. So I ask you to please come. That's going to require, well, if you're coming for life groups, y'all just come at the same time. You'll get here in time. You'll get here in time. We've looked through the book of Acts and we've seen from the beginning how when it began, we talked about how it shows us how we encounter God, right? It shows us how God came to us, started the church there in Acts 2, and how, how God comes to us and saves us from our sins. And then we talked about how he equips his church, preparing his church to be sent and to go. And then when we started this time together in Acts, we saw how God is sending his church. And so Acts 13, the sending out of the uh, missionaries with the first missionary journey of Paul. So we're continuing in that posture of being sent. Now this comes not just in the book of Acts, but throughout the Gospels themselves. In fact, I was reflecting upon the very first sermon I preached here as pastor, not the one I preached in view of a call, but as pastor, was from Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And there in Matthew 28, Jesus says, having been raised from the dead, now has shown himself to his disciples and he is fixing to ascend into heaven he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me now you go and make disciples of all nations the command of Jesus the last command of Christ was to go was to go and to make disciples and so when we get to Acts 16 16 we kind of get a little hint of that when it just simply says as we were going as we were going. You see Paul, Silas, Timothy, and at this point, just for uh, uh, clarity's sake, Luke is included as well. Back in chapter 16, verse 8, you see where it says, So passing by Mysia, they went down to Tros, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. You have the Macedonian call, then you get to verse 10, and it says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go. And so that between verse 8 and verse 10, you have Luke joining in with them as, the, as one joining in with the journey. So this is a firsthand recount now moving forward through this passage. And so you see, as we were going, if the command from God is to go and make disciples, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke were going. They were in that they were doing just that. They were going to make disciples. They were fulfilling the Great Commission and going to make disciples. And when we get to chapter 16, chapter 16 really is the narrative of three impressive conversions, if you will. Last week, we dealt with one of those, Lydia. Lydia was 
a seller of fine goods, purple goods, a, a businesswoman, if you will, probably an elite of society. And Lydia heard the careful exposition of the scriptures from the Apostle Paul, and she believed. And then this week, you'll have a slave girl who has this spirit of divination here, and and Paul casts out that spirit from her, and she believes by powerful exorcism. And then you'll have the jailer who's confronted with his mortality when he thinks he is time for him to die, to kill himself because of failure in his life. He believes. And so chapter 16 of Acts, we see Paul and, and, and Silas, Timothy, and Luke going as the command of God says for them to go. And as they are going, continually, those are put in front of them that are desperate for the gospel, and they proclaim the gospel to them, and they believe. Chapter 16 stands as a powerful testimony to the power of the gospel to transform hearts and lives. It stands as a powerful testimony to transform hearts and lives, how the gospel does just that. But the powerful gospel that transforms heart and lives, hearts and lives is always met with opposition. And just like we've seen it before, we'll see it here in our passage. So having considered Lydia last week, there from verses 11 through 15, now we will look at these next two conversions in Acts 16, 16 through 40. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll follow along with me there, or you'll see it on the screen if you do not. Luke writes, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour, night 
hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they had heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out from the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers and encouraged them, they departed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we ask that you would take your word and use it now to glorify your name, your son, Jesus Christ, in each and every one of our lives. God, you're gracious, gracious to allow us to be here, to be present, to be able to sing your praises. God, use this time now and your word here to mold us and shape us into who you would have us to be, to be a people that are ready to go for the sake of the gospel. All of this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Acts 16 tells us pretty clearly that the gospel is for anyone. As I've said, and we'll see here, you have a rich lady in Lydia, you have a slave girl in in here with a spirit of divination, you have a Philippian jailer. The gospel is for anyone. As we were going, it says, to the place of prayer. Most likely one week later, as you know, most Uh, of Paul had been before what he had done in his first journey was to go into the synagogue but now they have crossed over into Europe they're in Philippi there's no synagogue for them to go to the week before they had found some worshipers by the river and that's where they found Lydia and now they're headed there again possibly probably a week later and as they're headed there they're met with this slave girl confronted with her and it tells us that she's possessed by an evil spirit a spirit of divination one of that is to protect seemingly the gods of rome if you will she follows these men around and she begins announcing something almost as a herald of their presence she follows them around and she cries out these men are servants of the most high god who proclaim to you the way of salvation most high language echoes the old testament Like oftentimes we see many of the uh, passages in Scripture, the demons that possess people often know some of the truth. In fact, it tells us they know the truth and they shudder. And so here, seemingly, this slave girl is presenting the truth. She's walking behind Paul. She's walking behind all of his crowd. And she's proclaiming, these men of the Most High God, they come to proclaim to you the way of salvation. She did this for several days, it says. Now, notice what her job was otherwise. In fact, it tells us that her owners that own her got much gain by fortune-telling. What she would do throughout this with this evil spirit within her is she would tell the fortunes of people that would come, and they would pay her money to do just this. Now, some of you may be thinking, that seems crazy, but I remember growing up. And I, growing up, I had to be quiet and sneak to watch the TV at 11.30. In Columbia, it was WLTX, Channel 19. 
And I would sneak and watch WLTX channel 19 at 11.30 because that was the only time of the day back then. I know this is hard for y'all to swallow, but we only had four channels. And that was the only time of the day back then that you could watch the Andy Griffith Show. So every night at 11.30, I would sneak to watch the, the Andy Griffith Show. And there in that mid-commercial of the Andy Griffith Show on WLTX every night, that 11.45 commercial, if you will, came on this lady. And her name was Cleo. And Cleo said, you call my number, 1999, which was never good. Give me $5, and I will tell you your fortune. I will tell you what it was. And I remember being a young kid thinking, now that's a pretty good gig. You call me, give me $5, and I'll tell you exactly what I think too. I'll let you know. Amazingly, not only here in, in the book of Acts, but also in modern day times, you have the same idea of people kind of desperate for some knowledge of what's coming. They're looking on to some hope that it's going to be okay. They're looking on to some hope that it's going to be fine. I can only imagine. You give $5 for a little bit of hope, right? And so here this girl who had this spirit of divination was offering up and selling some sort of hope, some sort of fortune that she can give. But what we know is that all of this were lies. What she sold was lies. Like we understand, the only one that knows the future is God himself. And I know there is nobody in this room still checking the newspaper for your horoscopes. But those are lies too. Because all the only one that knows the future is God himself and his truth. And so this girl with this spirit of divination, this evil spirit, she's selling lies for others to believe. And what Paul recognizes is, I don't want this girl announcing me anywhere, even if what she's saying is seemingly true. Even if what she's offering is seemingly true. Paul becomes greatly annoyed, it says. Again, the picture here is me and my brother in the back seat causing a stink when we're driving down the car and my mama finally slamming on the brakes, turning around and said, that's enough. Here's Paul. And he turns around and says, that's enough. And in the name of Jesus, Paul casts out this evil spirit and it leaves her at that moment. Now, what we need to recognize here really comes back to the heart of what's going on. Satan is a liar he's a liar satan is a liar in fact john 8 44 tells us that he's the father of lies that he is the founder of lies that he began lying that it was what he invented in genesis chapter 3 satan is a liar and what like he tempted adam and eve in the garden with lies he's now wanting to pass lies out peddle them for all that would believe and this slave girl offering up this most high statement is only putting him and paul uh, and silas and timothy and luke in this position to where this liar is proclaiming things and paul says that that's enough. You see, Satan would like to dupe us with 100 truths only to tell us one lie. And that one lie is enough to condemn us to an eternal hell. What Satan wants to do is to buy into his lies. Whatever it takes for him to get you to not believe, to not trust, whatever it takes for him to get you to say, Jesus, but, or Jesus, and. You see, G Satan is not even afraid for us to say the name of Jesus as long as we add something else to it, as long as we put something else with it. Satan just simply wants to sell us lies. 
sell us lies. And what we see in this passage is this girl was selling him and Paul was having it no more. Paul was having it no more. Jared Wilson, a friend, wrote a book called The Gospel According to Satan. And in it, he identifies eight lies that Satan uses. They're used in so much in our own culture, in our own context, that sometimes we call them common sense and we believe they're to be true. These lies, he purports, says, he says, we believe these lies today, and because of that, they erode our dependence on God and discredit our belief in the good news. You see, Satan's lies are simply meant to do that. Erode your dependence on God and discredit the belief of the good news. And as this girl who's peddling in lies by this spirit of divination, that's what she's wanting to do. She's wanting the others to not believe, erode the dependence on God and not believe what Paul and them are saying. So as Paul steps up, he, he tells this spirit to leave and it leaves. But let's think about some of the lies that Jared, Jared Wilson points out in his book for us today that seemingly are common sense that Satan gives out there for us to believe. One, God just wants you to be happy. This is a lie ultimately from Satan himself because God has something more, greater for you than all of the happiness of this world. He is the eternal joy of hope of his own name. You only live once is a lie of Satan. We know that there is eternal death and there is eternal life. You need to live your truth. We know that there is only one truth and that one truth reigns supreme and that is God's truth. Your feelings are reality. Quite oftentimes your feelings will fool you and cause you to believe lies over and over and over again. God's truth is reality. Your life is what you make it. No, your life is dependent upon God and who he makes you and molds you as the potter we are the clay. You need to let go and let God. My friends, you need to hold on to God with all that you have. The cross is not about wrath. We oftentimes want to say the cross is only about love and God is love, but we see God's judgment even in the cross, and that judgment comes because of our sin. And finally, God helps those who help themselves. Friends, we are helpless in absolute dependence upon God. These lies of the devil are meant to erode our dependence on God and discredit our belief in the good news. And this woman, with her announcement, was trying to discredit the message of the gospel that Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke were giving and sharing. She was trying to discredit it. You see, the devil's tactic is even to mix truth with these lies so as to turn you away from God. The devil will tell you, that you're not good enough. The devil, the devil will tell you that you're a sinner. The devil will tell you that you're cursed because you have gone astray. And he's right. We're not good enough to earn favor in God's eyes. We have sinned, and because of that sin, because we have gone astray, now we deserve death. The devil is right, even when he tells us all those, those things. But what he tells us those things for is to get us to turn away from God and to give up and not to look to hope and not to look to satisfaction. The devil's right when he says that we're sinners. The devil's right when he says we're gone astray. The devil's right when he says we're not good enough. What he fails is to give us the chorus to that song. And the chorus is, Jesus saves. 
While we are sinners, Jesus saves. While we aren't good enough, Jesus is good enough. And while we have gone astray, Jesus brings us back into his fold. Jesus saves is the chorus to the ancient song of the redeemed. The devil doesn't want us to hear that. When Luke tells in his gospel about Jesus healing, casting out demons, Jesus says, I cast out demons and when I do, the kingdom comes in. When the devil is cast out, Jesus fills up that hole within us that is left. This little girl, slave girl, was in double bondage, the devil and her owners. But here upon the casting out of this spirit of divination from her, she goes free. She goes free. And if we go back just to the passage before with the conversion of Lydia, we see two ends of the spectrum kind of juxtaposed together in this passage. Lydia, that's this rich girl, this rich woman who is selling purple goods. Slave girl is here. We see both of them come to salvation through the proclamation and good news of the gospel. It is both by the grace of God, both fully dependent upon Jesus himself. You see, the gospel can save anyone, anywhere that calls on him. The question comes for us, even as we look to this, as this, this slave girl selling lies, and we recognize that the devil is a liar, what lies are we believing? The truth will point you always straight to Jesus. The truth will always point you to Christ, not away from him, but to him. So if someone is offering Jesus and or Jesus but, then you recognize they are taking a little bit of the truth and dabbling in some lies and some error because it's Jesus only. And the gospel became joy to this slave girl, but to the others it was bad news. You see, opposition began there in verse 19 right away. Opposition will be seen everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. Opposition will be seen everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. I do not want you to be caught off guard for this. As we understand we are saved, therefore we are sent. Therefore we need to recognize as we are sent with the good news of Christ, when the gospel is proclaimed, opposition will be seen. Spiritual opposition is part of a biblical worldview. To go out and to call others to repentance and faith is a word we call proselytize. It comes from a Greek word, proselytos, which means new member or new comer or new convert. And so to proselytize is to call people to come to faith to repent and to believe, to, to call them in with the gospel. In the Roman colonies at this time, to proselytize was illegal. It was illegal for them to call people to repentance and faith in the Lord God. It was illegal for them to do that. They had their system. That's what they stuck with. It's illegal. And before we go, oh, that's crazy, you need to know that in the majority of the world today, in the majority populations of the world today, it is illegal to proselytize. Even the two largest countries in the world as far as population goes, China and India, it is illegal to proselytize in those countries. It's illegal to share your faith. In fact, what's true is, in the vast majority of the world, you look around, it's illegal in those countries to share your faith. Still today, it's illegal. So Paul was 
was not given, even though he had caused them to lose some money. Paul was brought charges upon him because he was disturbing their city with this gospel, with this good news, with Jesus talk. He's disturbing their peace, if you will. But really, as I said, they were losing money. And when, he, when he's confronted about this, what happens? Paul, having preached the gospel, and Silas, the magistrates come up, they rip their garments off, they beat them with rods, many blows upon them, they throw them into prison, and then they put their feet into stocks, put chains on them. Like before, they tried to stop the advancement of the gospel when they put Jesus on the cross. They wanted to stop this kingdom language that he was talking. But obviously, when they put Jesus on the cross and he died, he rose again on the third day. You can't stop it. They tried to stop it with Peter and John when they told him not to speak anymore about this and then threatened to put them in jail and to beat them. They tried to stop it when they, they stoned Stephen to put him to death. Maybe that'll scare all of them off. They tried to stop it when they chopped off James' head in Acts. They tried to stop it over and over again with their threats and with their violence. But as you know, when they tried to stop Christ, he rose again on the third day. When they tried to stop Peter and John, they started the church from the proclamation of the gospel. When they stoned Stephen, he from him, the gospel spread out into Samaria and Judea and all over. When they, when they beheaded James, the gospel then went to the Gentiles Gentiles in every way. In fact, every single time that the devil has sought to stop the gospel from being proclaimed, it only causes it to go further and farther. And here it happens again. Because you would expect they're in prison, they're in chains, they just got beaten half to death. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing. It did not stop them from worshiping God. You would think the proselytizing was over, but it's not. They're worshiping God, praying and singing, giving praise to him for who he is and for what he has done. And then immediately it says, kind of in response to the worship of Paul and Silas, the earth began to quake, the foundations of the prison were shaken, the bonds fell off and unfastened, and the gates flung open. When the jailer saw this, when the jailer saw this, he recognized not only this earthquake was scary, but he recognized that something had happened here and thinking that the prisoners had left, he did only what he knew to do, what was right in his honorable charge to do, having the prisoners leave and, and, and be, be freed under his watch. The only thing proper for him to do in his culture and his place would be to end his life. Take the sword out and end his life for he had failed. And as he pulls the sword out to end his life, he's got one hope left. He's got one hope left. That somebody would call out to him with the good news of Christ. Confronted by his mortality. Confronted with death, knowing it's coming. You hear Paul say, hey, hey, brother, don't do that. Running in to see that they're all there. The jailer simply asked the most important question in all of Scripture. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And they said, and listen to their response, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul's response was to believe. 
And what does it mean here to believe? Because oftentimes we think belief is just intellectual assent. We just agree that it's there. But believe in the scripture is never just intellectual assent. Believe in the scripture is active trust. You believe something, you trust it. You believe something, you do it. You believe in something, you follow it. You believe in something, you live it. Your life testifies to that, living it out. So if your right beliefs there is, is that orthodoxy of the faith, then your right trust will be this orthopraxy. These two things have to follow, right belief, right work. These two things have to go together. And let's, we can put it in layman's terms, right theology, the right duology, right? If you have the right belief, you will do what you recognize and you understand and you believe. In fact, all of you walked into this room like you've done a thousand times before and you believe that these pews will hold you up when you sat. So you sat down. Some of you went ahead and plopped down. You had so much faith in it. Your beliefs meant that you act upon them. You show them, and so it is with God. To believe in Jesus is an action. It's a life that's now lived. It's placing our trust in him and following after him. And you see the opposite of what Paul's saying with what the, the little girl was doing, offering up the fortunes, right, and, and the lies, the opposite of this. Paul just simply says, you believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Note the confidence in Paul, because Paul's confidence was not found in just our belief. It was found in the object of our belief, Jesus Christ the Lord who has finished and accomplished salvation on our behalf and he says you believe in him and you will be saved Jesus is enough there's no need for another piece there's no need for another part there's need no need for an and or a but you just simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved who he is and what he's done for you and he not only says that you and your household here he says, by you believing, you are opening up the gates for all of those who are around you. Today, we're talking about the oikos, if you will, and those who are close to us but far from God. And you see it in action even here. You and your household. So Paul and Silas go to his house. They proclaim the good news in his house. Everybody in his house believes. They come. They fix them some food. They eat it up. They get baptized because that's what you're supposed to do after you profess faith in Jesus Christ. Follow him in believer's baptism. And then he does just like Lydia did before. The man who had locked them up in chains, the man who had secured the, the stocks around their feet, the man who, who was in charge of keeping them in jail, he's now welcoming them into his house, washing their feet, taking their wounds. This man was most likely the one who oversaw them being beaten by rods. He's cleaning them up. How does that happen? It's only by the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel changes lives. And this man goes from beating them and locking them up to cleaning them and washing their feet, feeding them and welcoming them in. And the only way you can understand that is through Jesus Christ, the Lord, who changes our life. Who changes our life. Paul's example shows to us how we must steward our opportunities to share the gospel. We oftentimes want to talk about a door being opened or not opened, and we oftentimes want to pray, Lord, tell us who, and, and give us the arrows of where they go, but it just simply says in this passage, as we were going, those opportunities arose and they came. Even when they're thrown in jail, here's our chance and our opportunity. Paul would say to them later that being thrown in chains has not stopped the gospel from advancing. 
It continues even there. Every opportunity, every day is full of opportunities, and we should steward those for the advancement and sharing of the gospel. And notice here how it ends. They come and they say, hey, you're free. Paul says, ah, you don't get off that easy because what they did was not just. And so Paul says, you got to come in and tell me you're sorry first. And I appreciate that. And after they do, Paul leaves and it says, so they went out from the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This, my friends, is the formation of the church in Philippi. The letter that we love so much that Paul writes, the letter of joy that Paul writes to the Philippians is written back to these believers and more. What a church this is. I've already mentioned it over and over again. You've got Lydia. You've got this uh, a wealthy business owner. You've got a slave girl who's been converted and freed. You've got a jailer of Roman uh, authority who's now coming to the bowl. And you look around and you say, what can do this? What can bring these people together? The rich and the slave, the, the, the important and the authority. What can bring them together? Nothing but the gospel of Christ Jesus. The gospel brings them together. And Paul encourages them, and the, he says these, these things to them, I am sure. Three things I think he, should, he encouraged them with. We see them in Philippians. One, he encouraged them with this. The gospel is the power of God to change lives. I've said it over and over again, but I don't want you to forget it. Whenever we read Philippians, he says in chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in ever, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul is saying what only matters is not who gets the credit or who doesn't get the credit. He's not even worried necessarily all the time about the motives behind it, only that the gospel goes forth because the gospel changes lives. The gospel builds the church. The gospel is the power of God to change lives. He encouraged them, secondly, with this. You will face difficulty, but the Lord will be with you, and the gospel will advance anyway. Writing in the end of chapter 1 to the Philippians, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by anything by your opponents this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that is from God for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw and now hear that I still have Paul says it's been granted to you not only to believe, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. The gospel came to us through suffering. It will go out from us in suffering as well. It's a part of it. You'll face difficulty, but the gospel will advance anyway. He encouraged him with this. The devil is a liar. And we confront those lies with the truth of God's word the truth of God's word 
You see, all throughout Acts 16, you see the power of the gospel. And then you see the weakness of the lies of the devil. They cannot stand. They cannot stand. His attempts to stop, his attempts to thwart, whatever it is that cannot stand, stand up to the gospel itself. In Revelation, it tells us if we're going to defeat the devil, it's three ways. Through the blood of the lamb, through the word of the testimony, and by those who are not afraid to die. Paul's encouragement here is this. The gospel advances by the blood of Christ and the power of the gospel. Through the testimony that you proclaim. And when you're not afraid, you're not afraid of the devil and his lies. That was the encouragement to the Philippians. May it be our encouragement today as well. May we not stand with those lies of the devil, but may we proclaim the truth and believe the truth. Jesus is enough. And may we get, take every opportunity, steward every chance we have to share with others the power of the gospel that changes hearts and lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your time to allow us the privilege to look to your word. God, we thank you for this opportunity to see the truth of your word. God, we know the gospel can change every heart, and that includes every heart in here. So for those in here who do not believe or have not trusted in you, God, may today be the day that they stop falling for the lies and believe the truth. Jesus is enough. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God, may that be the testimony of every one of us that we believe. If it's not, God, work in hearts now. God, not only do we believe, help us to proclaim the truth. Steward every opportunity and even be thinking today who it is that we can go and share. Creating our times to proclaim the good news of the gospel to others. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. In Jesus, we pray. Let's stand together and sing.